you remember Noel in West Wing where so Josh hears the bells and has yes, PTSD. Yes, yes, yes. That therapist, Stanley, the therapist that sees him. Yeah. If therapists could actually get away we could. with being like that, I would be a great therapist. <laughs> What up, everybody? So glad you're here. It's Andy Moore. Put the flow back in your ear. That's a Coolio reference. <laughs> Did that really just happen right now? <laughs> that's like that's up there with the British accent from last this week. This is why we don't record at 9 o'clock normally. <laughs> Hello, everyone. This is Andy Moore, and this is Let's Pod This. Uh, I'm joined don't, by use, s- don't use my real name after that. <laughs> this is DJ something i don't know if you're tuning in for the first time and you're wondering what the hell just happened <laughs> so are we well hey thanks for being here um so this week's episode is going to be a little bit different than usual it's not going to be much of us um which i hope that you're thrilled about we have two fantastic interviews with candidates uh, gop candidates for lieutenant governor dana murphy and matt pinnell are both uh, joining us later in this episode by phone uh and so we just want to do a, a quick rundown, not a bunch of articles like last week. Um, Scott, what do you have this week? Anything, any articles of note? Yeah, so really, you know, the only thing I was going to point out, there's been a little bit of news this week, but the, the one thing that kind of caught my eye as I've been reading this week was a great ar- article by Steve Lackmire in News OK, Steve Lackmire of The Oklahoman. Uh, Steve has an absolutely fantastic look at the problem of homelessness in Oklahoma, uh, in Oklahoma City specifically. This is... I would say it's definitely worth your time, and it's a great. I I, I mean, I think it's just a great piece of writing. Number one, with some really interesting stories, but number two, I like it because it doesn't like he doesn't like wrap it up with a little bow, right? Like you don't get to the article at the end, and it's like, mm-hmm. oh, and here's how we're going to solve homelessness by doing this. It's really just a look at kind of what the problem has been, how it's been, you know, exacerbated, what's gotten worse, what's gotten better, where are we today, and he kind of leaves it there for you to to ponder and and think so if you know if you're someone who is driving around the metro and you're you know you see panhandlers and you know you see you know homeless folks i think no matter what your no matter what your reaction to those folks are i think this is an article that's worth your time yeah and you know oklahoma city is building a a big new nice park in downtown and that park is displacing a bunch of homeless folks and i think as we move towards um well through this election cycle next february is an election for city council yeah um for several seats and this is including the seats that um that contain downtown and that's like um you know, District 6 and District 2 and 2 or 1, whatever Meg Sawyer's district yeah. is. Um, and so homelessness in Oklahoma City is going to be a big deal. There was also a, an article recently about the rate uh, that Oklahoma leads the country or is near the top in the country of uh, evictions. And that's an interesting thing to think about. Why people get evicted and and why are we so high? Right, like uh, people get evicted everywhere. Why are we so high? Uh, so that's interesting. So if you, if you care about this issue, even if you don't, you should, and you should read these articles. Yeah. Um, also, real quick, uh, in case you didn't catch the news earlier today, the state board of health approved the latest revised rules on medical marijuana. The next 
chapter in this ongoing saga. Basically, they w- had a board meeting, um, went directly into executive session, and then came back out and immediately motioned to adopt those emergency rules and it basically Un- undoing un- all the controversial right. things they did. Right. They're like, uh, we messed up, so here, we'll just make it right. And these the rules today were basically the rules that Attorney General Mike Hunter said, like, I think you guys should reverse course on these things and, and change this. So I anticipate that the governor will sign these maybe tomorrow because she signed the other ones the next day. <laughs> right, like immediately. Um, if she doesn't sign them tomorrow, everyone's going to be like, what happens so um that story is on literally every news outlet out there i'm reading non-doc right now but news okay and news nine all those have them um it's not on the new york times well okay all the local news outlets (laughs) also um uh, three quick updates or three quick event reminders Hmm. one reminder two announcements the first reminder is that next friday august 10th is our next capital restoration tour um, at the state capitol. If you want to sign up, go to, uh, ideally, go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash let's fix this okay, or our website, let's fix this okay.org, and go to the events page and just uh, click the link to go to Eventbrite and sign up so we know how many folks to expect. Scott, you're going to be there, right? I am. I'm super excited about it. I will it. be there. I've, I've toured the construction twice now, and both times it was very different and very fascinating. And what's cool about the 10th is that it will be one year since I toured it the first time. Nice. And I have a photo of, of um, my feet in the same spot to show progress of what they've done. And I think that's going to be, that's fun for me. Maybe not for you guys, a but super long time lapse. Well, yeah. One year. So anyway, it's free. You should come. The building's like a hundred years old and the restoration is, is not just, uh, not just for visual effect. Like the building was crumbling. Yes. It was, and, it was needed. It is functional. Right. And in, in my opinion, the state capital should be a thing of, um, honor and of, uh, pride for our state and we don't have a lot to be happy for we should have a nice it, it could be a symbol of what it could be right and so we're trying to make it into that an and appeal so, to our better angels if it you will. is yes uh, and trait is doing a great job kind of running that show so anyway come out it's free it's at three o'clock in the afternoon on a friday just take off work early and come if you want to go get a drink afterwards or a taco i'm totally down following that we have two debates coming up between now and the the runoff election. Um, the first debate will be on August 21st. That is for the Corporation Commission. Um, it's going to be, we're going to have, it's really two debates in one for this. The Democrats are going to go first. Um, they will be at uh, 5.30 to 6.30. Take a quick break for a set change. And then the Republicans will go from 6.45 to 7.45. So we've allowed an hour for each party, and it's divided because it's divided on the ballot, right? Like you either get the Republican or the Democratic ballot. Now, a caveat to this is that on the on the the both Democrats are going to be there, um, and then on the Republican side, incumbent Bob Anthony has declined to participate. Um, he we. When uh, non-doc, when Trace was setting this up, his one of his daughters said, I don't know that Bob can make it um, for some family reasons, maybe, uh, but she volunteered to come in his place. 
and we said, no, you can't come debate in the stead of the candidate. It's for the candidate. Uh, and so we kind of said, sorry, like you can either, this is when we're doing it. Everyone's agreed. You said you were on board maybe. And so they said, no, we're not going to do it. And uh, Mr. Anthony was frustrated, a little um, maybe disappointed that his daughter couldn't debate in his spot. That's weird. It is a little weird. That's like a little bizarre. I really, you know, I don't like calling people out, but you can't just ask someone to go in your spot to a debate. If you're going to a meeting, maybe, right? Like I was watching Parks and Rec and like Ron might go in Leslie's place or April or whatever, but you can't do it for a debate. Like we, the public is literally there to see the candidate and to hear from the candidate. Unless, unless you are the dean of an undergraduate institution and there's a group of men that are trying to form a new fraternity on your campus and you set a host of challenges for them. And one of those challenges is a debate. And rather than debating yourself, you hire the best debater that you can find to debate for your side. This is you hire and you hire James Carville and James Carville comes in to debate for you. No, this hasn't happened to me. This is the plot of the great and by great, I mean demonstrably terrible movie, Old School, starring Will Ferrell. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, dude. It's been a minute since I've seen that movie. Yeah, dude. Will Ferrell and, uh, gosh, who else is in that movie? Will Ferrell and, uh, what's his name? Luke Wilson. Yes. Luke Wilson's in that movie. Um, and Vince Vaughn. Yes, Vince Ear- Vaughn. Earmuffs. Yep. yep, yep. So if, okay, well, if the only example we can find to compare the situation to it's is the movie Old ter- School. It's from a terrible movie. <laughs> probably not a good sign. So the plan is for the Democrat candidates to debate from 530 to 630. And the Republican, uh, whoever shows up, it'll either be a debate or it'll be a single candidate. And in that case, um, we're just going to... Ask them really hard questions. Yeah, ask them a few questions for about 15 minutes and then we'll be done. Um, So the debate will be held at City Prez, um, which is off of uh, Northwest 13th Street, kind of by Mesta Park. They've graciously allowed us to use it for free, uh, which is super helpful. And uh, yes. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, They've... We've, I didn't, I didn't, I, I don't care. I just, I didn't know churches could do things like that. Oh yeah, they totally can. And we, I mean, I'll, I will say that, you know, um, that non-doc and generation citizen and us talked about this of like having it in the church and would that, um, turn off some voters Would that, um, bring others in and kind of weigh the pros and cons of it. And, and we decided, well, one, it's free space, which is helpful um, we expect a bigger crowd that, than what could fit into Trolley Stop Record Shop, which we used before. And uh, they already have sound equipment there, chairs they already have there. We don't have to rent anything. And Yeah, it, it, it totally makes sense. I just I didn't know that churches could be involved. It's not. I mean, it's way. nonpartisan. They're just yeah, providing they're space. Yeah, yeah. That's and, cool. Yeah. So uh, Corporation Commissioner Debate, August 21st. That will likely be on Facebook by the time you hear this. Um I'm going to just text to Trace. I'm going to do that tomorrow. Um, And then secondly, a few days later, August 24th, which is a Friday at 6 p.m., we're going to have a debate for the state uh, superintendent, the GOP candidates for the state um, superintendent for education. So it's between incumbent Joy Hoffmeister and uh, her um, challenger, Linda Murphy. And that will also be at City Press. 
Um, and it's uh, it's hosted by Nondoc, us, Generation Citizen, and uh, OICA, the Oklahoma Institute for Child Advocacy, Education, a huge impact on kids, obviously. So they'll be there as well. And um, this is um, entirely sponsored by McFadden, Milner, and Robinson. It's an advocacy firm, and they so they wanted to sponsor the whole shebang, just them. So that's thanks, um, guys. Super great. So and actually, we appreciate it. And McFadden and them are sponsoring both debates. They said, "Hey, you know what? These are important. We'll sponsor both." So hats off to them. And um, so you should definitely come again. You can sponsor the podcast too if you want. You can, yeah, <laughs> and that's a great point. If uh, if you're listening and you have um, a small business, you're a you know web design firm, you invent widgets of some kind, you're a dentist, I don't care, um, and you'd like to sponsor the podcast. Um, We'd love to talk to you. Um, yes. If you like a, the content that you get here and you would like more of it, we would like to bring that to you. Right. Because um, right now it's been just Scott and I, and at some point we're not going to be able to do this without some financial assistance. So we would love some help and um, that'll help us also spread the reach. So great deal. Um, so uh, one other quick note before we get to the interviews, and that's that this week it was announced that Oklahoma State Question 798 will be on the ballot for this November. Now that uh, this state question is the one that will, if passed, um, it will amend the Constitution to to allow the governor and lieutenant governor to be elected together on one ticket um, beginning in 2026. So a few years away. Not for a minute. No. So, and, and the no opposes that. So this would change the state election to be more like the the federal election, the national election, right? Yep. So, you know, at the federal level, president, vice president are of one party. You kind of elect them as a package deal. Here at the state, it's different. So there's a chance we could have a, a governor and lieutenant governor of different parties. We've had it in the past. Um, but this this would change the constitution to put that together. Kind of makes sense, kind of doesn't. Um, and so our our weekly question. I meant to have music for this. I don't. Yeah. Here, I'll just. Uh, hey, rimshot. All right. So the uh, weekly question of the week is, listeners. This week was announced that the state question seven ninety eight will be on the November ballot which will allow the governor and lieutenant governor to run on the same ticket. In your opinion, is this good, bad, or indifferent? Please send us your response at podcast at letsfixthisok.org or tweet at us at letsfixthisok. Let us know how you feel about State Question 798. We'll talk about it more next week. Beautiful. Is that it? That's all I've got for updates. Let's get to the interviews. I think you guys are going to really enjoy it. We've got two great conversations. Uh, Commissioner Dana Murphy, who's one of the uh, uh, corporation commissioners, she's actually, she's actually the chair of the Corporation Commission, and then Matt Pinnell, who has not worked in state government before, but has uh, worked in politics for some time. He and his wife are small business owners in Tulsa. They are both vying for the Republican nomination for lieutenant governor of Oklahoma. Um two, uh, two great, great folks to talk to um, who present, I think, uh, contrasting ideas about what the lieutenant governorship uh, can and should look like in Oklahoma. So we had a lot of fun uh, chatting with them, and I hope hope you guys enjoy enjoy the interview as much as we did. 
That's right. So we'll see you after the break. All right, fixers, welcome back. We are here with Corporation Commissioner Dana Murphy and a Republican candidate for a lieutenant governor for the state of Oklahoma. Dana, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Hey, it's my pleasure to be here. You know what they say about a runoff? It's like sprinting a marathon, only they move the finish line and they say, go a little further. So all the training and everything you've done, you're really ready to go. You just need to make sure you, you finish strong. You know, I think that's a great, I think it's a great analogy. It's not one I've heard, but that's a great analogy. I think that's the, the best one that I've heard. Well, we really appreciate your time. We don't want to keep you too long, so we'll we'll get right into it. I guess for first question is just for those of us that, for those are our listeners that maybe you know, don't know much about the corporation commissioner, not familiar with you through that, um, through that avenue of public service. Can you just tell us a little bit, you know, kind of about yourself, you know, where you're from, kind of what you've done in your career up to this point? Sure. Well, I'm, uh, I start off usually with, I'm a fifth generation Oklahoman. I was born into a farming and ranching family, um, in Ellis County. We actually still have a red Angus cattle ranch that my family owns and operates. And I'm a part of that LLC. I'm a geologist and an attorney. I've had my own law practice as well as having my own geology consulting business. So I've had experience in the private sector about 22 years. And then for the last 10 years, I've been a corporation commissioner. And the easiest way I would describe the corporation commission is an acronym that I use all the time, T-O-P-P, transportation, oil and gas, petroleum storage tanks, public utilities. So it's everything from the safety um, and dealing with overweight trucks to dealing with uh, overseeing and regulating about 3,000 oil and gas operators, almost 200,000 active oil, gas, and injection wells, about 40,000 miles of pipeline or so. On the petroleum storage tank side, we're the ones that make sure when you fill up your car that a gallon is a gallon at the octane level stated. We calibrate and check those pumps on a regular basis. We also are responsible for cleaning up leaking underground storage tanks, which can really impact economic development when businesses are trying to expand or cities are doing things. And then on the public utility side, that's probably more familiar to most people. We deal with rate regulation of OG&E, Public Service Company of Oklahoma, Oklahoma Natural Gas, Centerpoint. We're the ones that actually help set the rates and deal with that. And I think most people have probably seen recently in the news, one of the things we recently did was there's a, a refund that is coming to customers who are OG&E customers here in the metro and across the state that has to deal with uh, the one-time tax credit off the Trump tax cuts, as well as a rate reduction that customers started seeing in their July bills. And today we just issued an order that um, gives back to uh, public service company of Oklahoma uh, rate payers $428 million in deferred income taxes that'll start coming back on their bill. So all in all, it's really probably the most economically powerful agency in the state. And I've really had a front row seat in looking at so many of the aspects that affect Oklahoma economy and just businesses. And then all of us, it's just um, Oklahomans trying to pay our bills and, and have services that we need to live our lives. What made you decide to make the leap from being in the Corporation Commission, I think you've been on it for 10 years, you said, to pursuing the lieutenant governorship? 
Well, the last two legislative sessions and just kind of seeing what's been happening, I just think they were very challenging. Uh, uh, a lot of things that, um, I, I don't know, I just think they were really difficult in the way that things um, occurred. I just felt like my experience and my background, my ability to, um, uh, you know, deal and facilitate with people on very difficult issues. Also, familiarity with, you know, state government, already having relationships with legislators where I've actually worked on legislation. And then that ability to bridge that urban-rural gap, which I think continues to grow. I just felt like, you know, a lot of people were complaining about all the things that were wrong. And I thought, you know, I can do something about this. I've got this experience. I've got this energy and background. So instead of complaining about what's going wrong, why don't I see if there's something I can do? And I think I have a lot to offer and I think I can help. So, I mean, that's, I mean, it sounds simple, but I mean, that's really what motivated me to do this. Well, and this is Andy. I think that's a sentiment that we certainly can resonates with us as people who said someone should fix this. And, and here we are. Um, Can you, and so I know a lot of people don't really know much about, what the lieutenant governor does that may be because they haven't been paying attention or that may be because our current lieutenant governor hasn't been very visible to the public. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what the position does for our state? You bet. It has constitutional and statutory responsibilities. So under the constitution, you serve in place as a governor in the absence of the governor. Most people know that particular role You serve as the president of the Senate, and I'll circle back to that one in just a moment. You also serve on the commissioners of the land office, which is dealing with, you know, school lands and money and revenues that are attributable um, to that particular agency for the benefit of of schools. And then you also serve on the board of equalization, which helps certify the revenues to set the budget. So circling back to the president of the Senate, A lot of times it's just referred to more as a figurehead type of position because you do have the president pro tem of the Senate. Now, in Texas, the lieutenant governor wields a lot of power because it's set out specifically in their state constitution about really who drives legislation and and conducts the business there. A lot of Texans will tell you the lieutenant governor has more power than the governor in some respects, as that's concerned. Here in Oklahoma, I think it's a position that can be greater utilized because I think we can all, you know, the lieutenant governor can facilitate more with legislators and be a part of the process of facilitating with the governor and partnering with the governor. So then to the statutory responsibilities, it's serving on the tourism board, it's serving on archives and records and numerous other boards and commissions and as a corporation commissioner, I've already served on about 17 boards and commissions. So that is something um, I definitely know about. The point I would make about the tourism um, department, that's a statute that's going to change. We've heard a lot about how the governor now is going to appoint the executive director or the head of the Oklahoma Health Department, but that is also going to occur in the tourism department. Effective January 14 of 2019, it has been that the governor has selected an eight-member board, and then that board selects the executive director of the tourism department, and then the governor is the one who has designated who the chairman of that particular board is. Typically, that's been the lieutenant governor, but effective January 14th of 2019, the governor will now select the executive director, and that eight-member board will become advisory only. 
and the component in the statute where the governor set forth who the chairman of that particular board was, that that provision and statute is now eliminated. So any powers and responsibilities that were with that board are now shifted to the executive director. So I think as the lieutenant governor, for starters, if you're really going to have an impact and, and help try to do some things on tourism, you're really first, you're going to need a good relationship with the governor. You're going to need a good relationship with whoever the executive director is. And then kind of facilitate on what now is going to be more of an advisory board. Interesting. Interesting. (laughs) Um, What do you, uh, one point that you made that Scott and I were discussing before we called is that, that the Lieutenant governor assumes the responsibilities of the governor when the governor's not here. And most people think of that like in terms of if they die, then the Lieutenant governor assumes, (laughs) but um, Scott told me that he just learned that that applies even if the governor is just out of the state. Right. And, you know, another thing that most people don't realize, you know, the budget for the lieutenant governor, I think it was back in 2009 or so, it was about $700,000. So now it's $372,000. And mm-hmm. the, the job of lieutenant governor pays $114,000 a year, about the same amount. I think it is the exact same amount I make as the corporation commissioner. So, mm-hmm. Here's the twist on what you've just mentioned. When the governor goes out of the state, you take on the salary of the governor. So you're going to have to build into your budget an estimate of how many days the governor's going to be gone so that you don't go over your own budget when your salary bumps up. You just what? Blew- so, I mean, it's just... <laughs> what? You just yeah, blew our mind. <laughs> That's cr- that seems crazy to me. So if you're if if the governor was like had a, a someplace to go play golf in... Colorado every weekend for some bizarre reason and they did that you'd have to somehow budget for all those your time when they're gone well or if you know I mean you know you hope it never happens but you know if there's some kind of you know illness or some kind of something that maybe it could be a long-term situation and Mm -hmm. you know the reality is you know sometimes it really matters when who the lieutenant governor is. I mean, just look at the state of Kansas, look at the state of Missouri, where you've had their their governors appointed to other positions. And then the or, you know, in Missouri, the governor resigned and the lieutenant governor stepped up. And then in the other situation in Kansas, I believe the governor was appointed to some other position and left. So, you know, when it matters, it really matters. Yeah. So our kind of next question we wanted to get into with you is what what would you say right now is the biggest problem facing Oklahoma like if you if you had to put your finger on one thing that that's the number one thing we need to address what would you say that is and what are the steps that you feel like you can take as lieutenant governor to start working on rectifying that you know that's a bit Scott, like going to the doctor and saying, you know, I've got all these issues, but could you just tell me the main problem I have and what I'm supposed to do to fix it? I mean, I kind of look at it um, (laughs) like, um, I kind of look at it like the overall, you know, the overall health. I mean, we all know the economy's improving. You just look at the numbers that have been put up by the treasurer's office and you look at tax receipts. So we know that that's improving. And if you generally look at businesses that have still been coming to Oklahoma, Despite the issues we've had on funding teachers and all of the perceived issues that we have in Oklahoma related to government, you still have businesses moving in here and you still have them expanding. You can look at 
whether it's Sofidel, the Italian paper maker that's going up in Inola, the drone maker here, the expansion of uh, of Google, the Amazon fulfillment center. So certainly business is alive and well here. But to get to what do I think is is one of the, the biggest issues, I mean, I think how we deal with the budget, the budget really, it's kind of like when you're looking at the core issue of health of a person, what really sets the tone for everything else? And, you know, I think it's really looking at how government services are provided because most people, what do they want? They want to know that um, they can afford to live in a particular state, that they can have, you know, safety and protection, that they have infrastructure, it's safe roads and bridges. You know, there's fundamental things I think most all of us want wherever it is that we live. So I think fundamentally going back to the big issue would be looking at how we deal with the budget, how we provide government services. And then I think that's all wrapped in restoring the trust of people in government. Because I think right now there's a great sense of distrust. We don't know what to believe. Are these the right numbers? Is this really being spent like this? What are your sources of revenue? I mean, I think if anything we should have learned by now is let's show what are the sources of revenue for whatever agency it is or whatever service we're providing, and then let's show how we spend it, and let's have a more uh, a more transparent look at, at what we're doing. I, I think those are the first steps because, you know, we've heard a lot about, well, you know, we need to promote Oklahoma and we need to sell Oklahoma and the reality is we need to improve the product that we're trying to sell. And all of us are part of the sales force. There's not any one person. We're the best sales force for our state. So I think if we can improve some of our fundamentals, it's, it's improving your fundamentals and then you build on top of that. So I hope that's, um, I hope that answers your question. Yeah. It was a, I felt like it needed a little more background to then kind of dive into explaining because it's hard to narrow it down. Like this is the one thing that's, that's wrong, but I really think it starts with the budget, looking at core services of government, looking at incentives and exemptions, looking at where we, where can we consolidate and have efficiencies, where do we look at revenue, and then that wraps into does our tax structure make sense now for the the kind of economy that we have? Sure. So, and you know, you mentioned like efficiencies and making sure that you know people know a where money is coming from and b where it's going you know, as kind of a follow-up to that. So uh, not last week, but the week before, we spent about half an hour with uh, current state auditor and inspector Gary Jones. And one of the things that he had to say was that, you know, we've heard a lot about the need to audit individual agencies and individual departments. Um, and he was making the point that while the state auditor's office has authority to conduct financial audits, they don't have authority to conduct uh, investigative audit audits or performance audits unless requested by the governor, leadership of the legislature, or individual agency agency heads. You know, would you be like, would you be in support of working with leadership in the legislature to maybe change that to let the state auditor's office have more autonomy to to do performance audits and investigative audits to to help people know that the taxpayer money is going to the things for which it it should be used. Does that make sense? Yes. I mean, uh, well, I'll give you a prime example. We have embedded auditors from Auditor Jones' office in the commission, and we've had them in there since 2013. So part of our regular budget goes to actually 
pay them. So they're independent. They work under his authority, but they still work with our agency. So it's been a, a really good symbiotic uh, type relationship, and they make recommendations to us. We have implemented all of the changes that they have suggested. There's one outstanding item now that we have, and that's really going to be a, a monetary situation that almost all the agencies have to deal with. So I think it's been a great example of an agency that has about 500 employees, many of whom are remote, meaning they're out in the field. They're not at a particular office. And on top of his audits, we've had federal grant reviews. We've had 100 federal grant reviews, performance, financial, operational audits in the last 10 years. So we're an agency that, you know, we actually did, um, I did an editorial piece on what we've actually done at the commission. And that, to me, seemed like it might be a good example of where you could move that into government. Now, as far as um, having it where the auditor can just go in and, and do things without having the component of the governor or leadership or the agency, you know, asking to come in, I, I think you have to look at that. I certainly would be open to that, but I'm just giving you an example of where we did it because it's been a win-win for us. There was no... Um, it wasn't like, oh, this happened and it's a gotcha. It's like we wanted to start trying to eliminate problems and become more efficient. And that's led to us restructuring some things. We've eliminated a couple of positions. I, I think we can still make improvements, but I think we've moved in that direction. I think you continue to hear this. We need to audit everything. Well, audits cost money. Sure. And so you have to know you're going to have to risk assess and figure out where is it that we need to audit. I mean, I don't think you want to spend $100,000 on an audit to try to find a $10 problem. Right. So I think you have to you have to look at what, you know, it's kind of like with anything. You know, identify the problem that you're trying to solve. I do think that the people elect the auditor, and I think the auditor should be allowed to do the auditor's job. You know, there's a separate committee that's been created. I, I still don't quite you know, understand it because it seems like if the people elect the auditor, we need to find a way for the auditor to be able to do the job. Now, exactly what that would entail um, to what you've mentioned, I don't know. I've just given you an example, even around the parameters are there. Here's an example of how it's worked around those issues. But we as commissioners ask him to come in. And I think other, I think maybe if some of the other agencies knew that was available or they could see how it's worked at the, at the commission, maybe they'd be open to it too. I'm not you know, we got to share information. Yeah. I mean, that's one thing about communication, facilitation among statewide elected officials. That's one thing I think I can really offer. We've really had no one to facilitate across the other statewide elected officials. Sure, we have our own agencies in our own areas, but we're part of a team. I mean, we have ideas and we deal with things and we could provide those to um, to work collaboratively together with different ideas on on trying to help um, solve issues or have some creative um, solutions oriented type things. It's just, that's never really occurred before. And I think that's something I've seen that I think would be really helpful. And I think someone like me who's actually been in the position and then could facilitate with other elected officials because all their agencies are different. Um, I, I think that's just something, that's another thing I would say I have to offer. Sure. Well, um, so that kind of brings me to another question that we had is, you know, there's a lot of man, a lot of attention being played to really all the elections, all the races this year, and there's a chance at least that we could end up with a split ticket, right? That we could have a a, a, a Republican 
a governor and a Democrat lieutenant governor or vice versa. And so we'll use the we'll use the opposite there. Let's say that uh, that Drew Edmondson wins the gubernatorial election and you win the lieutenant governor election. And we've got a, a split ticket, essentially, which might not happen moving forward if the if the state question passes in November. But what would what would that look like for you? How would you find ways to reach across the aisle and work with a with a governor of the opposite party? Well, I think if you remember, you always had that before, not not too long ago when, you know, Governor Henry was the governor and Mary Fallon was actually the lieutenant governor. So it's not like you have to go back into ancient history to find out, you know, where that occurred. So I think the one thing that you can always do is you can take a look at what's happened in the past and what can you learn from that and how can you apply it. And I think the one thing that we can all look at, whether it's a Democrat, uh, Democratic governor, whether it's Indian tribes, you know, whether we all these different groups that have diverse interests, you know, we're all Oklahomans. And, you know, a rising tide really lifts all boats. I mean, I think we can all care about the health of our citizens, ensuring that our children get a great education that sets a foundation really for their future life. We all care about clean air and clean water and having safe roads and bridges. So in the big picture scheme, I think you have that. It's as you move down into the issues, you're going to have different values and you're going to have different things that you look at. But where are some places that you can find some areas that you can work on? I mean, I think about it today. You know, I work with two other commissioners that I didn't get elected with. They happen to be conservative Republicans. And surprise, we don't actually all agree. I mean, some days... Commissioner Anthony and I will go a certain way on a decision, and sometimes it's Commissioner Hyatt and I, and sometimes we're all three together. And then, of course, I like to say when the two of them are going in a different direction, it just couldn't be right. But I'm, <laughs> I'm joking about that. But um, And you think about whether you're dealing with earthquakes, whether you're dealing with rape cases, you have an incredible number of people who have very divergent viewpoints, and some of these groups may just have one issue they're concerned about in a multi-issue rate case. So I feel like I've had a lot of practice of, of trying to work with people and look at different viewpoints and see where you can find some things, you know, that actually work. So although you might have different viewpoints in a rate case, I mean, everybody wants affordable, reliable electricity. It doesn't do any good if it's the cheapest, if you don't know when it's going to be on. So I think you have to go into some of the fundamentals and then you have to look for some areas that you can, that you can try to, to work on. So you might have differences of opinion, but I think sometimes those lead to incredible, you know, creative solutions um, to issues. And I think it's really important. I mean, I'm proud to be a conservative Republican and I'm proud to be, you know, from rural Oklahoma and the family that I grew up with, but I kind of look at it. I really care so much about the state and I feel like it's about, you know, being a state's person and, and really trying to look at where we can find solutions to, to issues and not be so reactive, but to try to be more responsive and work with others. Cause I think that's what people want to see everywhere. I've traveled across the state. I hear the same thing over and over. Yeah. We want to know that our elected officials can work together to come up with solutions, not all these press conferences and press releases that are constantly criticizing each other. I, I mean, I think, you know, we talk to the folks that are involved with the, with our group that come to our capital days and come to our educations and trainings or that we hear from on the podcast. And that's what we hear. I mean, that's what we hear as well is that people want to see government work. They want to see it work. 
And in order for it to work, it's going to require people working together. So it's really, it's, it's great to hear that from somebody who, you know, maybe, um, you know, the number, the number two leader in state government, uh, in a few months that that's one of your priorities as well. We have just a couple more questions for you. Um, the, the first one, um, is a, is a, is a, if you, uh, whatever kind of your short 30 second explanation is, um, as your as a corporation commissioner, you know there was a lot of news last week about the wind catcher project and that the wind catcher project has been canceled. Um, and we talked about that a little bit on last week's episode of the podcast. But since we've got you here, I just wondered if you could maybe could you shed a little light for the listeners on kind of what happened there and why the project's not going to move forward. I don't think it's a 30-second response, but I'll do my best <laughs> to break it into the fundamentals. It was actually about a four a $4 billion project. About $1.5 billion of it was going to be in the state of Oklahoma. It involved um, Arkansas, Louisiana, Texas, and Oklahoma. And you have to understand, every state has its own statutory parameters for how it deals with electric utilities. In the state of Oklahoma... You know, we have rate-regulated utilities. In the state of Texas, it's a more of a deregulated market. I couldn't tell you exactly what it is in Arkansas. I think they're rate-regulated, and I'm not sure in Louisiana. So in Texas, you have to receive what's called a certificate of convenience and necessity to go forward on any project. Oklahoma, you don't have to have that. What Public Service Company of Oklahoma in Oklahoma came in on was under the pre-approval statute which gives the utility the ability to come in and seek pre-approval. You're not approving the cost, but you're basically letting them know, hey, that looks like a prudent and reasonable project, and then you still have to come back and recover the cost. So actually, Public Service Company of Oklahoma could have moved forward on the project without that approval, but you can understand their position. Why would you make, uh, you know, that kind of investment if you're not sure if it would later be found to be a prudent decision. The component that I think a lot of people didn't understand is part of what was necessary to take this wind uh, generated electricity from the Panhill of Oklahoma was about a, across a 350 mile transmission line, 765 kilovolts. It would have been the largest transmission line west of the Mississippi. And it was gonna have to go across a lot of land that is not in the footprint or not in the area that the Public Service Company of Oklahoma serves the load. Now, the commission doesn't have siting authority, so we couldn't say, hey, put the transmission line here and here's how you do it, because we don't have siting authority. That goes through eminent domain. But the thing on this particular case, I mean, you had such an outcry of landowners. Then you also had an outcry of people that were concerned. The capital costs in a wind project are all sunk up front. So you ultimately may have zero cost in the wind, but it's the investment to put it together. And that was ultimately going to be paid, you know, by the ratepayer. So it's a 25 year project with kind of a 10 year guarantee. And so I, I've kind of broken out some of the simple components, but the reality was it was a four legged stool. It sure. had to be approved in all four states. And if any state didn't approve it, it none of the happen. project would go forward. Cause over 20%, I think around 20% was in Texas and they've recently had some issues with their own, some other cases they've approved. So I think that was kind of their issue. I mean, some people say, well, you know, the commission delayed and whatever. And I'm thinking, this is a $4 billion project, the largest wind project in the U.S. And I don't think, I think the commissioners per se 
we had it had, had it under advisement for less than a month. Right. So we don't control what Texas does. I mean, right. Texas, they have their own way of, of doing things. And I think you could tell that there continued to be effort by the utility to continue to try to work it out with various groups. But in Texas, they had no agreements with anyone. In other sure. states, they did, and they had some here in Oklahoma. So hopefully that's helpful. It's a complicated yeah. issue. Yeah. It is. It is definitely, you know, we, we were familiar, I think with, you know, kind of the disputes about, you know, landowners and concerns about the building of the transition, the transmission line. And, you know, obviously the wind projects are complicated because of the upfront capital that you mentioned. So it was just, yeah, you know, um, I think it was, uh, I don't want to say it was, a. I, I don't know whether it was a surprise to people or not that it was canceled, but it was, um, you know, kind of, I, I big... think, I think some, some people probably were, you know, surprised Scott, but the reality is this project relied on a lot of, um, assumptions and you, and you had to look at what are gas prices going to do? Sure. Are you going to get the full benefit of the, of the federal production tax credit? Is our legislature going to put a generation um, tax on kilowatts of electricity generated. Right. I mean, that would have, the whole economics of the deal could have changed on it. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of uncertainty in terms of what's going to happen. Just go back yeah. to, we have to follow what our statutory framework is. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Well, and I think just on that note, you know, a lot of folks, even if you like, uh, you know, like wind, like wind energy or any other, progressive what's the word yeah. i'm looking for like renewable renewable like, there we go yeah. um, energy uh that's great but let's say for just a brief moment that we switch entirely to renewable resources right we switch all the way away from oil gas coal all these things we switch over we get a ton of money from those sources and we've got to find out how to replace that right just right. like the tax on gasoline okay yeah if we switch and everyone drives a tesla all of a sudden no one's paying gas tax we've got to we can't just undercut yeah. the whole state government that way. So I think everyone's got to understand think, that there's a cause and effect here. And I think you really have to look at it, you know, using the blend of resources. What most people don't realize is that one time, you know, the legislature set a goal for us in Oklahoma to have, uh, it wasn't a mandate, but to have 20% of the electricity generated in Oklahoma by wind. Well, we've surpassed that now. We're in the 25 to 30% range. And then you have to remember the wind does not blow at the peak times of electricity <laughs> yeah, use. And, right. and so you have to really, you have to look at, there's been congestion at times that will be created when so much wind is running. And then people have to remember, it's not just about the state of Oklahoma. We're part of the Southwestern Power Pool, which is the grid, the regional grid, where transmission and how electricity moves um, around the region in between states. The Oklahoma's in the Southwest Power Pool, and there's 11 states in there. So you have to really, you have to think big picture, but then you also have to get down to the granularity of what's kind of going on in your state. And it all has to, you have to take into account um, all of those different components. Sure. I think, you know, last last question I think that we, that we have, um, this is kind of goes back to something that you mentioned um, I think it was when we first, when we first started chatting, you know, you're from rural Oklahoma from out in the, the panhandle. And you've mentioned a couple of times this, this kind of rural urban divide that exists in Oklahoma as one of the challenges that we have to overcome. Um, I think that you're hundred percent right. And one of the challenges that I've had as someone who grew up in Oklahoma city and Edmond and still lives here. And I've, 
I, I didn't grow up in a rural part of the state, um, is wondering how do we, you know, where does that divide come from and how do we bridge it moving forward? Because I, I think, and you're 100% right, it's tough to put your finger on one thing. You know, I, I don't remember the last time a patient came to the office <laughs> to see me and only had one thing on their, only had one thing on their list that we needed to address. So it's, it's certainly tough to kind of nail it down. But to me, that's one of the biggest challenges that we face going forward is, you know, kind of remembering that whether you live in Watonga or Oklahoma City, we're all Oklahomans. And in that respect, we're hopefully all on the same team. I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about about that and how you see, you know, building relationships and building bridges to, to bring those two groups together moving forward. Well, I think one of the probably the biggest divides that you saw on it was the issue of education, you know, because schools are really almost the lifeblood of a lot of the smaller communities. So when you talk about consolidation or when you talk about changing things, I think you have to really look at it more in the particular local area. And, and I'm just saying that you, you might, what you would do out in a, a particular area in the panhandle is very different than maybe what you might try to do with looking at how you deal with consolidation, say, of administration within a metropolitan area. So you already see kind of a different component there. The healthcare issue continues to grow because you can see, and 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 you probably know this, Scott, firsthand, is just you look at, at rural healthcare and then you look at the metro facilities. I mean, one thing we've been able to do at the Corporation Commission is, you know, you've got the telemedicine fund, which most people don't realize is telephone customers. They help pay for part of that, where you help provide access for those in rural Oklahoma with some of the um, metropolitan facilities. But the challenge is how much should each telephone customer pay for that? I mean, and it's the same way with providing internet services for schools and also for public libraries. So I think there's some things that, that can be done. I think fundamentally, I think you've got to just dialogue with people because here's an example, just a, a real simple example. I have a friend that is a principal in a small school out in western Oklahoma. And so she said, hey, when people talk about let's just consolidate administration, she said our superintendent is the bus driver, the substitute teacher, and she listed several other things. So if we consolidate and he gets to be the superintendent of several other schools, now we're going to have to hire a bus driver. Now we're going to have to do things different. So we need to be thoughtful of what might work in a particular area. That might not work the same somewhere else. So I think you really have to go in with more granularity and understand what the issues are and the problems are and then see and look and see if there's different, you know, components that can be dealt with. And to me, I look on the, the, the healthcare system. I mean, forgive me for saying this, but I feel like it's become disease care. We treat diseases. It's, it's less that we try to find out and do preventive things before we get to that problem. And so I, I, I guess I see it as it's complex and simple, if that makes any sense. Yeah. It's got simple components, but when they're woven together, they're they're complex. And and then, you know, the county commissioners will complain because, you know, monies were taken out of their funds by the legislature that were gonna go to improvement of roads and bridges. So see you're already starting to build tension. Yeah. So it's kind of looking at how have we done things? What can we learn? I mean, what can we learn from some of the things that we've done? to try not to do some of those things again. The last example I would kind of give you that goes to the bigger picture of how government can work 
when the commission was hit with this earthquake issue, we didn't have any earthquake department. We didn't right. have any staff. We had no resources. People were calling us, complaining, you know, why aren't you doing something? And I'm thinking it was a problem we had never encountered before. So we quickly had to start working with the geological survey because we're the regulators. They're the researchers. Right. We needed information from the industry. And it really took a collaborative effort because a lot of times this confidential proprietary seismic survey data that is not used to locate earthquakes or faults, it was used to locate traps to drill for oil and gas. Now that had to be utilized so we could have a better understanding of what the problem was. And there wasn't a one-size-fits-all. What's happening in certain parts of the state are a little bit different. The geology is different. So I'm just giving you an example of typically... Groups that you hadn't seen collaborate, the industry, the regulators, the researchers, and then, you know, working with even the public to try to come up with how we better communicate, having town hall meetings, getting data, working with researchers outside of the state from, you know, Stanford and USC, and working together. And I can just honestly tell you, it wasn't perfect. I mean, some people would still say we didn't do enough, we didn't do it too, we didn't do it fast enough, but look at where we are today. We've made a lot of progress. We've, we understand a lot more. We're continuing to work on it. We're continuing to still take actions. So I think it was an example of government can work. We went from about zero to 100 mile an hour in about, you know, three and a half, four years. Yeah. And the legislature has still never designated the funding that we need to run this program, which is about, um, I can't remember now, $650,000, $700,000 a year. We've been having to just try to work it out on how we find the money. So I just use that as a more of a, it's a complicated, but a, a, a helpful analogy of diverse interests that came together to work to solve the problem that was affecting all of Oklahoma, affecting the public, affecting the industry. Um, it had a lot of components um, to it and to try to balance all those. And then, you know, you had a lot of angry people. I mean, my house was damaged too. So were some of the people that work at the commission. So it wasn't a remote problem for us. So I'm just saying again, it wasn't, you know, you learn and and I just feel like all the experiences that I've had at the commission and then just personally, I think lend themselves to being more of a, I see myself as Lieutenant governor being the sixth man. If I need to go out and start, I'm ready to go. I've done all the training. I'm prepared. I'm ready to step up. And if I need to be in the background and facilitate a group of diverse interests, or if I need to go cut a ribbon and or go out to other states and talk about what's great in Oklahoma, like our third lowest electricity rates, I've already been representing Oklahoma on a regional basis in the Southwest Power Pool and many other places, and we're recognized as a leader on so many energy issues, and there's no reason we can't be a leader on all these other issues. We just have to decide to do it. We have to get some of the right people and get them involved. And then I think as elected officials, we've got to show some progress. I mean, we've got to take some steps and show, look, we can do this and we work together and then restore and build back a better trust in government. And once you've broken trust, it's really hard to rebuild it. And I, that's where I see things. I don't, I, I feel very hopeful. I feel very excited. I'm sure you can tell I like to solve problems. I'm a very solutions oriented person. And I think that's what we need. No, I think I think you're right, and I'll you know we I think I think you make a uh, you make a strong case for yourself as a candidate. So well done, well done there. Um, well, that brings us to the end of our questions. Um, we really appreciate your time spending 
you know, half an hour on the phone with us tonight. You, uh, I think we've, I've counted, let's see, geologist, attorney, corporation commissioner, candidate, cattle rancher. So that's at least five hats that you wear mm-hmm. <laughs> on a, on a routine basis. Well, I don't know. I don't know if you have a suitcase I, that you carry all those hats around in. Um, well, and I forgot to mention, I'm still a personal trainer and I bake the communion bread at my church. I've done that for gosh, over 18 years now. So I think it's about being a disciplined and dedicated person who just has a great love, you know, for the state and for life and, and for people. And um, I think that's translated into um, all of these things. But I just, I, I feel like I have a lot to offer. I And I hope people will check out my website. It's DanaMurphy.com or go to my Facebook at Dana, the number four, okay, if they want to find out more information i just really appreciate the opportunity to visit and and talk with you all and the and the volunteer time and effort that you give to provide information to people i think that's really important so i appreciate your the the two of you guys's effort on that too well thank you very much and i'll and i'll tell you right now we would we would love to have you back um as you know lieutenant governor or any other capacity (laughs) that you're in We'd, we'd love to have you back on the show and uh um you know if you uh if you if you went out in uh, August and in November. Um, look forward to interacting with you as the Lieutenant Governor of Oklahoma. Hey, well, that'll be great. Cause you know, pretty much my line for everyone. If you're looking for real experience with real results, I believe I'm, I'm the right choice. And I do think with the way things look in the future, we're going to have a lot of new faces at the Capitol, but we still need to make sure we have a blend of experience and new faces. And I think I think the timing for me, I think that's something I really offer. And with an energetic person who's willing to put on yet another hat. <laughs> All right. Well, Commissioner Dana Murphy, Oklahoma Corporation Commission, uh, GOP candidate for a lieutenant governor. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Hey, Art, we're back, and we're joined by Matt Pinnell, who is uh, another candidate for the lieutenant governor position here in Oklahoma. Matt, how are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me, guys. Great. Thanks for being on. Um, Let's start by maybe just telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Yeah. Um, Well, I'm a, um, I mean, I guess first off, the the things that I'm most proud of, I'm a a husband, uh, I'm a father. Uh, father of four kiddos. Uh, we got four in the Jinx public school system. So uh, we live in the South Tulsa area. Uh, and my wife and I run a small business. Uh, so my wife, I give her a lot of credit for this, but she's uh, she's an inventor. Uh, she invented what is known as the Binksy Baby Shopping Cart Hammock. Uh, so if you go go anywhere go anywhere with shopping carts, uh, you'll you'll see uh, our invention. Uh, they're little hammocks that clip into shopping carts for uh, for babies that can't sit up yet. Uh, and so we invented that about five years ago, patented it. Um, I, I remember the days five years ago, we were packaging these up in our kitchen. Uh, we went from the kitchen to the living room, living room to the garage. Uh, I still have never parked my truck in my garage. Uh, moved from the garage to a, a big warehouse in uh, Bixby, Oklahoma. And um, so now we ship our, our baby products all over the country and all over the world. So, I never thought I would be in the baby product business, uh, but but we are uh, in a very big way. So we're small business owners. I mean, that's what we do every day. We we wake up every morning. Uh, where are we going to sell today? Put food on the table, 
and uh, been very successful with that over the last four to five years. Nice. Well, congratulations on that. Yeah. What? Uh, yeah. So, what made you want to transition from baby products to lieutenant governor? <laughs> yeah. Sure. <laughs> sure. Well, I, you know, but the other part of my world uh, on the political realm, I, I've never been elected to office, uh, but but I definitely have political experience. So I, I, I ran the Oklahoma Republican Party uh, in the 2010 and 2012 election cycles. And okay. so, uh, you know, but before then, my wife and I were both uh, ORU grads, uh, and I was a public relations advertising major, but, but I started doing politics in college, uh, worked on a number of, of political campaigns um, over the last 15, uh, 15 16 years. And uh, kind of the, the pinnacle, I guess, for me was was uh, running to be the state Republican Party chairman. Uh, and then from there, meeting a guy named Ranks Priebus, who hired me to, I went from running just Oklahoma to running all 50 states. Hmm. Uh, so my job was to oversee every state in the country uh, in the 2014 and 2016 election cycles. Uh, at the same time, you know, juggling, raising four kids, running a small business. Uh, we, we've always kind of uh, uh, d- done a whole lot at the same time. Uh, didn't We didn't have to move to Washington, D.C. for that job. You know, Reince would call me and said, hey, the Arkansas GOP's, you know, burning to the ground. Go fix it. <laughs> or, you know, uh, you know, Connecticut can't get their act together or Florida. And so I, I, I traveled all over the country, uh, mm-hmm. literally have been in every state in the country. Uh, the last four years. And when I would get up and give speeches, I mean, a lot of what I would do, I'd go into a state party, uh, we'd put a business plan together, uh, we'd, we'd give them metrics to, to follow. I mean, these, these are multi-million dollar small businesses in a, in a lot of ways. I mean, Florida has a multi-million dollar operation every every year. Uh, but but I would do a lot of speeches in, in different states, and, and I would always start off every speech by saying, I'm Matt Pinnell, and I'm from Oklahoma. And and anybody that's traveled anywhere around this country uh, knows what I'm about to, you know, the, the experience that, I, that I'm about to say. Because when you go around the country and you tell somebody w- what state you're from, you always get a reaction. Whatever state you're, you're, you're from, you're, you get a reaction. And the reaction that I got was not great. Uh, I, it was, I kind of dubbed it the Oklahoma snicker. Uh, there would be a couple people that would snicker in the room when I said the word Oklahoma. And it, it, you know, I laughed along to start with, you know, when people would introduce me, they'd tell some dumb joke, you know, about, about Oklahoma, uh, usually revolved around football, tornadoes, teepees, you know, something like that. (laughs) And I I got really offended. I, I got really offended by this. It wasn't the state that I knew. It wasn't the people that I knew that I've grown up with. Uh, it wasn't the state that, that my wife and I have, have chosen to raise our family in, uh, you know, start a small business in. And, and, and I started getting an itch. I mean, that, that's really where I got the itch to run for office. Uh, not for, you know, Congress, not for some other position, but if there was a position that was kind of the sales and marketing position for a state, I could get really excited about it. And, and that is lieutenant governor. I mean, that the, any lieutenant governor around the country, you look at any lieutenant governor, they, they, they sell. They sell for their state. Uh, they usually run the tourism department in their particular state. And, and they really are an economic development director in, in a lot of ways for, for, for their governor and for their state. And so 
I started looking at what the lieutenant governor did in Oklahoma, and I said, well, gosh, that's exactly, that's exactly what I would be good at. Um, and, and I wanted to get in this environment because I wanted to fix some things in Oklahoma. Uh, and, and I had obviously heard uh, what, the, uh, what our reputation was around the country, and not just a couple states, but in literally every state in the country. And, and that's really where, where I got the itch to run and, and why we, as a family, decided to jump in this thing about a year and a half ago. So uh, Matt Scott here, that's really, um, yeah. that's really cool. And, you know, I, I think uh, Andy and I, I speak for both of us when I say we can absolutely empathize with uh, the need to fix some stuff mm-hmm. around here. That's, uh, yeah. that's, what, yeah. that's what we're all yeah. about as well. Um, yes, it is. Yes, and it is. You've you've kind of hinted at this already. It's our first question, and you've already started answering it. But I want to kind of lay it out there and and get you to make it even kind of more explicit, if you would. You know, a lot of folks, I think most folks in Oklahoma know that we have a lieutenant governor. I think maybe half of them ish at any given time could say who that person is. Uh, Right. I don't know that many of them at all could say what it is that they do yeah i think if they were guessing they would say uh do they take over if the governor dies which would be true but could you kind of lay out for us kind of from your as you understand it like what it it, what does the lieutenant governor in oklahoma do like what's the job description yeah sure you know this is the biggest question that that i've been going around the state trying to make the pitch for uh because it, it it's true um that a lot of people have no idea what the lieutenant governor does um, uh, first off, they don't know who the lieutenant governor is, and, and as you just said, which means they do not need security detail, uh, which we could get to that down the road. Uh, but but it, they sit on a number of boards and commissions, um, uh, and I would say one of the most important uh, boards and commissions that they sit on uh, is that they are uh, the chairman of the Tourism Commission, uh, meaning they should be daily involved in uh, the branding of the state. So. You look at any lieutenant governor around the country, uh, most of them um, uh, run the tourism department in, in some shape or form. Uh, Louisiana, that's their only job, is to, is to run the tourism department. So they're basically, they run the sales and, and, and marketing department within the lieutenant governor's office uh, in, in Louisiana. And, and they create a ton of reoccurring revenue for the state of Louisiana because of that. In Oklahoma, uh, that's one of their jobs. The other big job that, that I would say that the lieutenant governor has is they're president of the state senate. Mm-hmm. Constitutionally, they're president of the state senate. Historically in Oklahoma, that has meant that they break tie-breaking votes. That's, that's about it. In, in my opinion, and, and in the opinion of, of any state senator that you would ask, the, the, the lieutenant governor should be much more involved uh, helping navigate a, legis- a legislative agenda through the process and then selling it around the state. Uh, now, that would mean working with the governor uh, because he is going to have an agenda uh, that, that he got elected on. I, I firmly believe that the lieutenant governor uh, should be helping navigate that legislative agenda through the process. Sure. You Again, look at any lieutenant governor around the country, uh, a governor and lieutenant governor that work together, uh, whether they run on the same ticket, uh, whether they run as a ticket or not, if, if they operate as a team, they're getting stuff done. They're, 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 they're pat, they, they have a, a plan and a vision for their state, uh, and then they help sell it around the state. We have not done that in Oklahoma. Um, you know, in, in my political background, framing issues, 
uh, putting agenda together. Uh, that, that's something that I have experience doing uh, that, that I don't believe Dana does, uh, nor does she want to be that kind of lieutenant governor. So there, there is very stark contrasts between, you know, fundamentally what Dana and I want the lieutenant governor to be. Uh, I firmly believe that it is a sales job, uh, and, and I think that's the most effective use of the lieutenant governor. Uh, as I just said, to drop the security detail, give me an RV, and I will take my family and I around the state and promote the state of Oklahoma. Uh, we rented an RV for spring break last, uh, last spring break and hit about 10 state parks. Uh, and I still get people all the time to tell me, hey, you know, you went to that, you know, I saw the picture of you guys at this state park. I never knew that existed. I mean, right there, I mean, that, that to me is the job of the lieutenant governor. Uh, someone said, you know, you should dub it Air, Air, you know, Airbus One. Uh, and I said, you know, that, that's a great idea. Just give me an RV and I will promote this state uh, and create some reoccurring revenue for it. Uh, you know, any, any elected official needs to know their job. Uh, I, I think the problem that we have in any state, uh, and in Oklahoma for sure, is you have candidates run for a political office and then they try to turn it into something that it's not. I don't want to do that. I, I just want to do the constitutional job of the lieutenant governor. And if I do that, then I'm going to help, uh, again, create reoccurring revenue for the state and help the governor uh, pass their agenda through the process. Sure. So you brought up a really interesting point. So, we, you know, we heard this week that, uh, I forget the number, but there'll be a state question that'll be on the ballot in November that would join the the governor and lieutenant governor as like a, as a joint ticket if it passes Correct. moving forward. But that's not in play this year, which means there's a right. chance that we could have a, a split ticket. So let's yeah. say yeah. By, by some chance that, and right now it, the, the polling last week looked like a pretty dead, sure. even heat. Um, yeah. If Drew Edmondson yeah. wins governor and, and you happen to win lieutenant governor, how would you handle that? What would you, what would you yeah, do well, to, I, to, to cross the, uh, cross the aisle? Sure. You know, I'd, I'd handle it how Brad Henry and Mary Fallon handled it. Uh, you know, it wasn't just, it wasn't too long ago that we had a Democrat governor and a, a Republican Lieutenant governor. Uh, and again, I, I think it reinforces, it should reinforce to voters that again, I want to do the job of Lieutenant governor. It doesn't matter if there's a Republican or a Democrat, uh, as governor. If the lieutenant governor is selling and promoting the state of Oklahoma, if they're helping retain and recruit jobs to the state, I think I can do that uh, very effectively uh, as lieutenant governor, regardless of who the governor is. Now, I would tell you, of course, I would I would uh, hope that it's a, gov- a, a Republican uh, as because I'm a Republican. Maybe we, we would get uh, get along a little bit better. Uh, but there's no doubt if, if I'm lieutenant governor, I'm a lieutenant governor for the entire state of Oklahoma. Uh, regardless of party. Um, and, and because we do not run as a ticket, there is no forced marriage after the primaries either hmm. or after the runoffs uh, that, that I have to serve with whoever the next governor is. That, that's right. Um, and I think Brad Hunter and Mary Fallon, um, you know, set out um, and, and did serve together. Mary kind of stayed in a tourism lane in some ways. Now, I would say Mary, you know, took that gavel. Uh, a few times as president of the state Senate and broke some very important tie-breaking votes. Um, so I, I think in some ways it might reinforce even more so um, who the president of the state Senate is, uh, if it's a Democrat governor and a Republican lieutenant governor, because I, I do believe that it will be a Republican 
majority in the state Senate still. Uh, and so I, I think I would probably serve uh, better than a Democrat lieutenant governor uh, under that scenario. Uh, but you're right, because we don't run as a ticket. Uh, it very well could be a Democrat Republican or Republican Democrat. So and and I kind of want to I want to follow up to that and come back to something that you mentioned as, you know, bringing up kind of the the idea that the lieutenant governor Cannon should play a more involved role in navigating, uh, you know, helping helping a governor's legislative agenda navigate the process yeah. in the Senate, you know, and this is obviously kind of hypothetical, but again, say it's, you know, it's a, a democratic, a democratic governor and, uh, and you're the Lieutenant governor. Would you kind of see your role as president of the Senate navigate, like helping to, you know, working with the governor, you know, hopefully trying to craft that legislative agenda and, you know, work with, work with him to obviously you're a conservative Republican, Drew's a Democrat, you know, yeah. in, influencing it where you can, but then trying to help navigate that through working with people in your own party to try and say, Hey, look, he's a Democrat, but here's good things about this. Here's bad things about it. Here's why we could support it. Here's why we can't. Or would you see your role as more, you know, kind of working with the majority to say, you know, he's the governor, but he's got an agenda that we really don't like. How can we, how can we kind of keep, keep that sure. from happening? And I hope that yeah. that's, that is not at all meant to be a like, you know, loaded or, or baited, no, 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 baited I get question it. at all. Yeah. No, I, I get it. Um, you know, I mean, we would have to take it issue it issue by issue. I mean, I'm not sure what um, what Drew's uh, agenda would be, what his three or four ticket items would be, or, or Mick or Kevin Stead. Um, I know that I would be on the governor's cabinet and, and hopefully in the role of, of the small business advocate on the governor's cabinet. You know, that's what uh, you know, that was Todd Lamb's role on Mary Fallon's cabinet with the small business advocate. Uh, I would want that job back day one because we actually are small business owners. That's another big contrast between Dana and I. Um, so uh, we, we'd have to take it issue by issue. Uh, but, but certainly, I, I would hope that, uh, again, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, we, we look at that agenda. Uh, I go back and I sit down with Greg Treat, uh, who I know very well. Uh, who will be the pro tem uh, in the Senate, as you guys know. Uh, and, and we see where we can find some common ground. Absolutely. Um, you know, as, as I've told people uh, for a year and a half now, it, it doesn't matter how many taxes you raise, try to raise, or programs you try to cut down at the state capitol. If we are not creating private sector jobs in the state of Oklahoma, uh, then we're going to continue to be on this roller coaster down at the state capitol. So I, I, whether it is a Republican or a Democrat governor, I, I firmly believe they are going to be pretty laser focused on how do we create more jobs in the state of Oklahoma. At least they better be. I mean, if they're going to be successful governor, then we're going to have to create more jobs. Uh, you know, there's 28 million people in the state of Texas today, and we have about 4 million in, in Oklahoma. Uh, if we want better roads, better education system. Uh, and, and those core services, long term, we've got to have more private sector taxpayers. We have to have more people paying into the system. And, and, and anyone would tell you that on, on either side of the aisle. Uh, so I hope there is some common ground, uh, particularly on that front uh, of, of what, what the, making sure that we have a business-friendly uh, environment in Oklahoma uh, where we can create private sector jobs. If we're doing that, then I think there's going to be some common ground. 
Sure. So, you know, the last few years have really been marked by a deep disconnect um, between, well, between House and Senate, and then certainly between the legislature and the governor's office. And I, I think in the, from what I hear from voters, um, a general sense that the l- lieutenant governor has kind of been absent. And certainly, you yeah. know, in hindsight, we know that was likely because he was running for governor and wanted to distance himself from Governor Fallon's policies. But, um, but people are really tired of that yeah. kind of division within the government because it it is both perceived and is actually results in like just a gridlock that doesn't get anything done. Yeah. How would you try to fix that? Yeah, I think you nailed it. You, you said voters are tired of it, and I've heard it for a year and a half since, since I've announced for lieutenant governor. I mean, voters are tired of the dysfunction. Uh, they're tired of a governor and lieutenant governor not working together. They're tired of a House and Senate not working together. They're tired of Republicans and Democrats not working together. Uh, and, and I know our legislators are hearing this as well, by the way. Uh, so I'm pretty optimistic moving forward. Uh, I know that we're still talking about state government here, uh, but but I'm actually I am optimistic moving forward uh, because we're going to get some new uh, leadership uh, and new statewide elected officials. Uh, that that uh, people want to get some things done uh, in state government. Uh, they they want to make sure, uh, you know, I, as I said, I, I was the, the national um, uh, state party director for the RNC overseeing all 50 states, which, which meant, you know, in the 2016 cycle that I was on the campaign trail with Donald Trump and another, uh, uh, as well as a, a lot of other uh, national elected officials. And I think Republicans forget you know, Donald Trump, when he campaigned in the same sentence, when he said we need to break up the status quo, he also said we needed to rebuild the country. And I think Republicans forget that second part sometimes. I'm all for breaking up the status quo. Believe me, uh, I'm running against someone that's been on the ballot since 2002. Uh, I, I think it's time for some new, fresh blood down at the state capitol. Uh, but, but we all... But, Trump also got elected based upon saying we've got a we need an infrastructure we need an infrastructure plan in this country we need better schools we need a better health care system and we have to make sure that we remember that I mean both Republicans and Democrats and independents mm-hmm. uh, across this country uh, that, that Trump talked a lot about fixing things as well uh, kicking out the status quo yes uh, but but I think voters in Oklahoma are the same way. Uh, they're tired of the status quo, uh, but they want to fix some things. And, and uh, as lieutenant governor, uh, I'm going to go about the business of making sure that we fix some things in Oklahoma as well. You know, you've mentioned you've mentioned the importance of creating private sector jobs and promoting, you know, creating an environment that promotes the growth of business, particularly small business. And yeah. you know, one thing that I think has really really dominated this last legislative session and really the session before that too and this is just an example to lead up my question was the was the issue of raising the gross production tax on oil and gas and and i bring that up because i think it's it's a great example of the need for two things in really any government but i think that this is particularly acute in oklahoma you know, it is absolutely important that the state government has good relationships with industry, particularly the energy industry, which is, you know, the backbone of our economy. And so 
we hear a lot from legislators like, oh my God, you know, this is the most profitable industry in the history of the world and they're not paying their fair share. And I'm not trying to, you know, argue whether those are good or bad arguments. I'm just saying, I think it's important that our government has good relationships with the people that are in this industry. However, yeah, yeah. I think there's also, you know, there, there are the needs and wants of the industry and there are the needs and wants of the citizens of Oklahoma from their government. And sometimes, yeah. sometimes those are going to align and sometimes they're not. And, yeah. you know, my question to you is, you know, if you want to comment on the GPT, that's fine. But if just as kind of a more general statement, how do you look at balancing? Here's what industry says is best for them. Here's what <laughs> maybe is best for the people of Oklahoma. How do you balance those things? And then how do you kind of arbitrate it when they, when they don't align? Yeah. You know, the, the, the tough part in Oklahoma, and, and this is really since, <laughs> since we became a state, there really isn't a balance in Oklahoma because we're not diversified. You know, we, we rely way too heavily on the oil and gas industry in Oklahoma. Uh, we are way too dependent upon the price of oil. And, and, and I've said this, the, <laughs> the oil and gas companies would love Oklahoma to be more diversified because if we were more diversified, that, that would mean that we wouldn't keep going back to the oil and gas industry every time that we had a budget deficit. <laughs> right. Because, because that's, you know, I mean, that's, that's what we're doing right now. You, you know, I mean, every time, you know, we, well, gosh, we're, we're, you know, $800 million in, in the hole. I guess we should go back to that industry that actually has money. And, and, and you know, it, the gross production tax, I mean, you know, I go back and forth. I, I thought uh, 2% was too low. I, I thought there could be a compromise there. I know there's there's people mad on both sides of that issue. Uh, what I've told the oil and gas industry is, listen, as lieutenant governor, if I'm the small business advocate on the governor's cabinet, if it's my job to make sure that we're retaining but also recruiting jobs to the state of Oklahoma, every day I am my, myself, as well as whoever the next governor is, if they're successful, they will think this way. How do we become a more diversified economy? Because if we're not, then we will continue to be on that roller coaster uh, down at the state capitol. I mean, aerospace is the number two industry in the state in the state now. That that was the biggest news uh, of of 2017, 2018 that that some people talked about for about 24 hours. But, <laughs> but the great thing about that, it told me that hey, we've had we have an opportunity here. I mean, we, you got to play to your strengths, and any state has to play to their strengths. And aerospace seems to be uh, a, a big strength of ours. That's great because all those STEM education jobs, you know, uh, engineering jobs that are so sought after around the country, uh, you know, we talk about STEM education so much. If aerospace will not continue to be the number two industry in Oklahoma unless we continue to, to graduate more uh, engineering students, as well as uh, making sure STEM continues to be very popular in Oklahoma. So that, that's my pitch to the oil and gas industry. It's like, hey, you know, guys and gals over here, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for the taxes uh, and, and, and the, 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 you're, you're the number one job creator still in the state of Oklahoma. I want, uh, uh, you know, fracking 365, 24-7. But guys, it can't just be you. It can't just be you, and and that's why Arkansas is doing so much better than us. I mean, right across the invisible line in Arkansas, they're much more stable. Now they would love the the, the rock that we have to frack. Believe me, they would love it. 
but they're much more stable because they don't have that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they have a much more stable economy. So, you know, for me, uh, that relationship is going to be much more balanced uh, if we do what, you know, frankly, in a lot of ways, what Oklahoma City is doing. I mean, Oklahoma City is, is not as reliant upon oil and gas as they were 20 years ago, uh, which, which is, I mean, gosh, that, that, that is the biggest success story, frankly, in my mind, uh, is that you've turned now Oklahoma City into a very diversified economy uh, it, to where, you know, when that price of oil, you know, isn't at $60 a barrel, which it is right now, when it's at 20 or 30 they can survive that. And, and there's, unfortunately, a lot of counties around this state, we got 77 counties in the state, a lot of counties can't survive. Absolutely. Well, uh, last question um, for you. And if you if you don't mind, I want to move uh, away from the overtly political um, and ask you about something that's on your on your Twitter bio. You have on your Twitter bio, sure. you've got uh, dad to four, husband to inventor, business owner. And then the next one, the next piece is what I want to ask you about, foster care advocate. Um, yeah. What yeah. can you uh, what what can you tell us about that? Sure. Well, you know, my, we were foster care parents uh, for a number of years. Uh, so we have four biological kids uh, before we had our fourth. Our fourth is now two years old. <clears throat> so we've had four kids for a very long time because we've had babies. Uh, we had a couple babies in our house. Uh, we were foster care parents. Oh, two or three years, uh, about three or four years ago, uh, through DHS, obviously, uh, went through St. Francis, did all the training. Uh, we, we were life church, um, uh, family and, and Craig and Amy, if, if I know you have listeners and I'm sure go to life church, sure. uh, you know, Amy and Craig had a huge heart, uh, for recruiting more families to get involved in the foster care community. And, you know, before we went to that church, I mean, we, we really didn't, uh, but we prayed about it a lot. Um, it was certainly very scary for us to get in the middle of, uh, but it changed our lives. I mean, it changed our kids' lives. Our, our kids still know the names of, of the, the kids that we had in our house. Uh, and so when we had our fourth biological uh, child a couple of years ago, we said, well, we, we got to take a break. Uh, wanted to wait till our fourth could walk. Uh, and then, of course, I'm in the middle of this crazy political season, uh, but we will have more foster care uh, kids. Uh, you know, anybody that's been in this arena um, uh, knows that uh, once you're in it, <laughs> uh, whether you are fostering or not, you're involved in some way. Uh, you know, we have about 10,000 kids in state custody in Oklahoma, which is far too many. Uh, and I will give Mary credit. You know, she launched the Oklahoma Fosters Initiative a couple years ago. Uh, I actually met a couple individuals at that press conference. I'm on one of the boards right now. It's the 111 project uh, that uh, has a, a product called the Care Portal uh, that's uh, leveraging technology uh, to help meet the needs of kids uh, in the foster care community. And so they we train we train uh, DHS recruiters okay. uh, on this Care Portal system uh, through the 111 project. So. I absolutely, I'm very proud of it. Uh, it, it certainly, like I said, has changed uh, our families' lives. And as the, the lieutenant governor has a statewide bully pulpit and a platform to talk about any issue that they want to talk about. And, and I'm going to tell you right now, one of the issues that I will be talking about as lieutenant governor, uh, when I'm lieutenant governor, is we have way too many kids uh, in the foster care community, in state custody, uh, and that we need to get more families involved uh, to stand in the gap. Uh, when those parents are getting restored, 
Uh, and so it will be one of the issues that I that uh, certainly that I champion as lieutenant governor. Well, I will uh, I will definitely tip my cap to you on that. So when uh, when I'm not obsessively reading everything I can get my hands on about Oklahoma politics in preparation for sure. interviews like this, my my day job uh, is uh, uh, I'm actually a pediatrician, uh, and my wife is a licensed clinical social worker. She's the clinical director. Oh, yeah. She's the clinical director of a of a nonprofit here in Oklahoma that that works um, with a lot of uh, foster and adoptive families. So it's foster care is definitely an issue that is near and dear to our hearts. So thank you for fostering. Okay. And thank you for thank you for advocating uh, for foster care in Oklahoma. No, well, absolutely, and thank you guys. Yeah, and and on from my end as a as a licensed uh, behavioral health practitioner as well and someone who does adoption home studies um, I've had at least a, a hand or a foot in the door uh, of that world and and I also appreciate that it is it is very needed I have uh, a number of friends in fact my I have some family that were I got to be there uh, when he was adopted um, I had a, that's awesome my sister-in-law adopted a, a guy that was uh, on his 16th birthday and it was uh, super cool to be there because well, at that age cool. most people aren't you know they just are waiting to age out and she decided, That's right. how about you join this family? And so um, that was a cool, cool deal. So, all right, Matt. Well, Very hey, cool. thanks for uh, taking the time this evening. And we will um, look for you on the campaign trail. Good luck uh, later this month. And uh, maybe we'll see you as Lieutenant Governor. I appreciate it, guys. Yeah, those that want to learn, learn more, mattpinnell.com is my uh, website. Great. Well, and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll speak for both of us. I think I can say without reservation, no matter, you know, no matter what shapes out, no matter what shakes out mm-hmm. in, uh, August or November, um, would love to have you back on the show, uh, either as Lieutenant yeah. Governor or to, uh, you know, just come on and talk politics and policy. Let's get some, let's fix Absolutely, those branded, man. um, little baby hammocks for, uh, we'll put the logo on there. <laughs> All right, Matt, there you have go. a great night. Hey, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. And that brings us to the end of the episode. That was too loud. Don't forget to subscribe and rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts because that helps other folks discover us and become better informed. Remember, you can connect with us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. We are at Let's Fix This OK. Scott is at SC Melson. Andy is at Andy OKC. You can like our Facebook page, go to the website, sign up for the newsletter, read the blog, find resources and details about upcoming events. You can also make a donation if you'd like. We'd love for your, have your support. It would really help us kind of expand our reach. And, uh, and as we said earlier, sponsor the podcast, which would just be really cool. Our podcast is edited and produced by Scott and me. And Let's Pod This is a member of the Mostly Harmless Media Network. Our theme music is provided by the Sugar Free All Stars. Let's Fix This is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization who strives to educate and equip all people, all Oklahomans, to engage in their government. We encourage you to get involved in any way that you can. And remember, decisions are made by those who show up. Have a great week.